as we see in the book of Revelation, if you turn there. Revelation chapter 1. You know, I learned, as I'm sure many of you have at a very early age, that life is full of losses, whether of a father, as it was for me at the age of six, or maybe of a pastor, as it was for many of you three years ago, a couple pastors, and here we go again. I've learned that God's agenda through our every loss, without exception, is to make more room for himself than would otherwise have been possible. But we tend to fill the void with anything but him, whether surrogate fathers, as was the case with me, uh, or maybe church hopping or internet surfing to find another pastor to fill the void or expecting the new pastor to fill the void, God help him. And so long as we run after everything but Christ, we'll never really find him. But if we just stay in the place of our loss and wait on him, as someone said, to such emptiness, such loss, which can seem as all-embracing as the sky, he is drawn and he will come. Because that's his agenda. Yet too often we don't wait on him because we're so captivated uh, by everything but him. Captivated by things, captivated by people, captivated by celebrity pastors, rather, or whatever, but rather than captivated by Christ. And so if you're anything like me, you have to pray something like this again and again. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Or like Charlotte Elliott wrote in 1854, Lord Jesus, make thyself to me a living, bright reality, more present to faith's vision keen than any outward object seen, more dear, more intimately nigh than even the sweetest earthly tie. Because he will spoil you for anything else. Anything less if you let him. So much so that it can be like Bernard of Clairvaux wrote. This is in all the devotional literature. This was on the first page of our wedding bulletin 39 years ago at King of Glory Lutheran Church, just, just north of here. He said, Jesus, thou joy of loving of hearts, thou fount of life, thou light of men, from the best bliss of, that earth imparts, even from this marriage, we turn unfilled to thee again. Which is my goal today to turn you from me, to turn you from Pastor Dave, to turn Julie and me even from you, even as Julie and I turn, even from one another, even on our wedding day, to turn from our every loss and from our greatest gain, unfilled to him alone. Contrary to popular opinion, the book of Revelation is not fundamentally about prophecy, though that's a good part of it. That's the story but it's really about the hero of the story. It's about the first five words of the book, which are its title, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. But too many people don't get it. Yes, this book is about the, th the things which must shortly take place, as Christ said at the end of chapter one, but he's the one through whom they take place, and he's the one who's revealed as they do take place. And so the book of Revelation is all about the person and work, really, of the second person of the Trinity, not in Palestine in the first century, but in glory, and as such, it's the fifth gospel. We turned here on March 31st, 2019, my first Sunday here. And now on my last Sunday, we'll return to where we began. 
as once again we turn unfilled to him again. Yes, it's the fifth gospel. The first four gospels show Christ as he was in history. The fifth gospel shows Christ as he is in eternity. The first four gospels show Christ as he was for a few brief years on earth. The fifth gospel shows Christ as he is now and forevermore in heaven. Will he be? The first four gospels show Christ really in his emptied state, as Paul says in Philippians 2, in his humility. The fifth gospel shows Christ in the the fullness of his majesty, crowned with glory. And so, again, the book begins with five words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then eight verses later in verse 10, we hear him when John says halfway through the verse, I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash, and his head And his hair were white like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it's been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. We could spend an entire message on any one of these attributes But there's one that I'd like to focus on today, which is in many ways the bottom line of who he is. Let's get a running start at it again in verse 10. I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Like the sound of a trumpet, which means his voice pierces, it penetrates, it provokes. Without pride and without apology. This is not, you know, the gentle Jesus of many seeker-driven churches gentle Jesus, meek and mild, that always says they're there. No, this voice says, wake up like the blast of a trumpet. It's like we didn't even know, but now we know that we were fast asleep all along compared to him. It was a rude awakening, even for his closest friend, uh, the apostle John, because when Christ returns in his glory, it's gonna be a call to attention to all mankind, as in, you know, feet together, stomach in, shoulders back. And so John says, I turned, verse 12, more like wheeled around. It says it twice to emphasize it, to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like, and here it is, in many ways, the bottom line of who he is, a son of man. What John's saying is this, if it's possible that there's a son of man, here it is. He's saying, you might not believe it. I I can hardly believe it myself, but here he is. One like, could it be the son of man? John calls him by the same name again and later in Revelation, just like Daniel did in his vision of heaven. And he gives us a sense there of what it means when he says, behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, Daniel 7.13 was coming and to him was given dominion, glory, sovereignty, and all the peoples, nations, and men of every language will serve him. When John said, I saw one like a son of man, it's one of the 
those tip of the iceberg phrases in the scripture. These were the first words out of John's mouth when he saw him, just like they were with Daniel. Because one of the uh, most important things that you can know about him, one of his most important names, the name that's, that's most central to his unique nature, the name that's at the heart of the revelation of Jesus Christ, one of the most powerful revelations of Jesus Christ in all of scripture is that he's the son of man. Now, you'll need to listen carefully because this is going to be some rich theology. But there's a treasure at the end of this dig. The same treasure we'll see that you uniquely offer as a congregation. And that he is therefore uniquely available for you as a congregation for you to turn to him. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The Son of Man is one of his names. And we know that God reveals what's most important about himself, what's most essential to his nature through his names. He was Jehovah Jireh to Abraham, the God who provides. He called himself El Elyon, the high and exalted one. El Shaddai, the all-powerful one. Adonai, the Lord. And likewise, Christ himself has many names. The Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, the Wonderful Counselor, the Prince of Peace, which all stand for different aspects, facets of the jewel of his person and of his work. But of all these names, and of course there are scores of them, I used to have a poster in my office with all the names of Christ listed, and it was an amazing thing. Uh, But of all of them that are listed, there were two that he himself favored far and above all the others. The first is the Son of God, and the second is the Son of what? Yeah, man which is just what John favored, his closest friend, right here. In the four Gospels, he called himself the Son of God, directly or indirectly, 20 times. But did you know that in those same four Gospels, he called himself the Son of Man over 80 times? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. For this reason, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not think he will. And you can't can't help but ask, why would he favor this name, four to one, above the next runner-up, the Son of God? You'd think it'd be the other way around because that's what we tend to focus on, that he's the son of God. He's very God of very God, like it says in the Nicene Creed, co-equal with uh, the father on the level of of his uh, divinity. And that's true. He was co-equal with the father on the level of his divinity as the son of God, which we can never be. But just as importantly, he was something equally divine on the level of his, his humanity, which we can be. And on the level of his humanity, he's all that we can be. And that's what Christ himself highlighted again and again. Not how he's like God, but how he's like us and how we can be like him. And first he brings us to our knees in penitence so that he can be full through us. By calling himself the son of man, he was wooing us, we're going to see, to what we can be, but only in him. He was wooing the whole human race to himself. How so? Well, stay with me now. In Bible times, they use this phrase, son of someone or something, in two very uh, different ways. The first, of course, was the Jewish way of, of, uh, of showing who your father was. That's why uh, Christ called Peter, Simon, son of, remember, Jonas. 
That's why, because Jonas was his father, James, son of Zebedee. But the other way they used it was not to show uh, your father, but something about your character, about your essential nature. That's why Christ called James and John sons of, remember, thunder, because they had a prophetic nature of foretelling the truth. And Barnabas was the son of encouragement because he had the heart uh, of a shepherd. We could give many other examples, but the point is this. The son of God... Uh, with few exceptions, has the first meaning. It tells us who his father was and is. He was the son of God, the only begotten of the father. But the son of man has the second meaning, the one that focuses not on his father, but on something uh, else about his unchanging nature. Because, and listen to this, by nature, he has always been God in the form of man, in the form of the living, bright reality that we can be. G.K. Chesterton called him the everlasting man because he was the, like the man type, the archetype, the, 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 the image in which we were created, the original of which we are reproductions. That is, he, he, he's the gold standard for all mankind who's called us to his own glory and excellence. Unbelievable. 1 Peter 1, 3. And for the church to be where the diamonds are of his own glory and excellence, as we're going to see, something needs to happen, and a lot of that has happened right here. But I'm getting ahead of myself again. This answers the question, the, the great anthropological question, very simply, who are we anyway? In Genesis 1.27, it says God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. And what does that mean? Well, as you, many of you might know, it's, it's the subject, been the subject of some debate. Some say that being made in the image of God means that we can reason, unlike the animals, like God can. Others say it means we have dominion over the earth, like God has dominion over the universe. Still others say it means that we can be creative, just like God is creative. And all of these and a lot more would be true. But the New Testament makes it clear that under and through and over them all, the image of God is very simply Christ himself. The scripture could hardly be more clear, Colossians 1.15. For he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. 2 Corinthians 11.7, he is the image and the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. To be made in the image of God means that we were made in the image of Christ. And when he called himself the son of man, he meant he's the, uh, the source of man. He's the original uh, and unadulterated essence of humanity. He didn't just become like us when he was born of a virgin, having been you know, something completely different for eternity past. Oh no, quite the opposite. We became like him when we were created. And when at last he came to earth, he became like us, us in that, as it says in Philippians 2, he was found in appearance as a man. The everlasting man became visible in space and time through flesh and blood, and in so doing, he stooped down to become a a single instance of the type uh, of the race that he himself uh, originated. The bottom line of which 
of all of it is this. As the son of God, he's fully God, which of course we can never be. But as the son of man, he is the fullness of all that we can be. Slowly but surely as we grow in him in this life and then completely and gloriously in the afterlife. He's, and Amy Grant summed it up years ago, all that I've come from and all that I live for and all that I'm longing to be. So is he that for you? Are you really, really captivated by Christ? Is he a living, bright reality, more present than to faith's object, keen than any other outward object seen, more dear, more intimately nigh than even the sweetest earthly tie? You know, when I teach in Bible school, some of my students will always say, you know, but I've never met him. Like, you, you meet other people, like upfront and personal. How can he become my all? It's easy to answer that question. We do this all the time with all sorts of people that we've never met, especially when we're younger, especially in our culture. In America, we do it instinctively. We do it compulsively. We do, we do it religiously. We do it idolatrously. It's called the cult of personality, the cult of celebrity, where we almost worship celebrities we've never met. And I was no different. All my life, I've tended to fix my eyes not on Jesus, but on other idols. And for me, it was different men who I never met. After my first father died when I was six, I started to like latch on to one father figure after another to fill this God-shaped vacuum. All these substitute fathers, surrogate saviors. When I was in junior high school, for instance, I virtually dedicated my life to playing the trombone like my first father did, and Bill Pierce became my idol. He's a famous Christian trombonist, a, a really fabulous one. And more than anything else, I wanted to be like him so much that it hurt. He's created in us that desire to drive us to him, but we go to our idols. Then in high school, it was chess, and Bobby Fischer was my man. And I know that dates me. I wanted to be like him until it almost hurt. Anyone remember Bobby Fischer? Remember what became of him? Thank goodness we don't always get what we wish or pray for. I tell you, in in high school, it was soccer, and Pele became my idol, a famous soccer player back then. I, I, I would watch his every move. I so wanted to be like him that it hurt, and I gave my life to soccer. And then it was Francis Schaeffer and C.S. Lewis, and on and on it went, and it became like this open wound because I could never become any of them because I wasn't them. There's no connection. Now, if your deepest passion was chess, you may have looked to Bobby Fischer, the son of chess. If your deepest passion was golf, you may have, you know, looked up Tiger Woods, the son of golf, or at least used to be. I tell my co-ed students, if your deepest passion is to be married, you may be looking to some future husband, some son of, of love, some, you know, knight in shining armor who will magically meet all your needs. God help him. You may be looking to some son of preaching or pastoring to fill the void in your life. But if your passion in life is to fulfill your created purpose in life, to become all that you were meant to be, you'll be captivated by Christ. You'll be looking to Jesus. 
He'll be by far your highest attraction, your, your deepest passion, your, your greatest ambition, your hero, your idol, if you please. Your God will be the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. And you'll be driven to your source. You'll fight like the salmon do against the current, hundreds and hundreds of miles upstream, all the way back to their origin, through hell and high water, which is not a bad picture of the Christian life, because that's his agenda. Your heart will ache until you get there. A deep attraction will drive you, literally a fatal attraction, because you'll die to anything to gain him, and that's what it takes. You'll suffer the loss of all things, as Paul said, and comfort, but rubbish that you may gain Christ. Anything that he takes has that agenda. As it all passes before your eyes, it'll all be good because it's all for gain, all for him. And the more you see him, the more gladly you'll, you'll lose your life, you'll bury your cross, you'll count the cost because it only makes you more like him and it only gives you more of him. No loss will be too great. No price will be too dear. No, no the sorrow too deep. No cross so cruel so long as you gain him who's the sum, the, the source, the, the savior of all mankind. Who's all that I've come from, all that I live for, all that I'm longing to be. So, how does this all apply to us? When the rubber meets the road, where do you go with this? What's the next step? Well, it just happens that you as a church have already taken it by being right here. If Christ is really what you want, if the Son of Man is what you really want more than any pastor, you've come to the right place, and it predates me. In fact, when I got here, your elders were unanimous. They were unanimous in their answer to the question in the Interim Pastor Ministries Church Information Forum. The forum said, we desired that the interim pastor help us with the following needs of the church. And the number one desire that they listed, number one of nine was this, help us recenter our focus on Christ alone. Which is why I began on March 31st, 2019, my first message here with Revelation 1. And it's why we're now ending here. In so many ways, if Christ is what you want, you've come to the right place. Our mission is now to know and show the enduring truth and love of Jesus Christ. That doesn't come out of nowhere. And it didn't come from me. It came from all of you through scores of interviews, through the transition team, through the journey wall, starting with the elders and through so much else. And if you want someone whose passion is to call your attention not to himself, but to his Lord, you've called the right pastor because this is precisely Pastor Dave's passion. And if you want to turn unfilled to Christ alone, week in and week out, you're sitting under the right teaching because he's passionate about the word of Christ. And in particular, starting, two, uh, starting three weeks from now uh, with a two-year immersion in the Son of Man through a two-year series on the Gospel of Matthew. That says a lot about him. I know of no other place in Loveland or Fort Collins where you will find this. And that's not the half of it. If you really want to encounter Christ through his word, not just generically, but to hear his word for you individually, 
you'll, you'll be listening to the right voice from the pulpit because the secret of making this happen is not what we're taught in seminary. It's what you learn after seminary, if you're luckiest, that, that Christ comes through a brokenness and dependence that sends a pastor to his knees, which is where Pastor Dave spends a lot of time, which is a rare thing these days, especially for someone of his age. It's like another David said, David Mills, who's mentored many pastors. It's an article that was published just this last week, and I think it's just for you. It's titled, The Secret of Preaching Good Sermons. Subtitled, It's Not Being Good at Preaching. <laughs> he said, it's a secret that people who write books on preaching don't seem to notice. They tend to focus on technical skills or the preacher's character. The preacher needs both, but to really preach well, he needs something else. I write as a layman, but a layman who's tutored preachers and preached himself, it's a work I know. Then he shared about other pastors who pray, and one pastor in particular summed it up, and Mills wrote it down. This pastor said that when he spent much time praying for his people, much time thinking about them before God, he preached much, much better. He couldn't explain it, but he'd long felt a difference in his preaching between the weeks he could pray that way and the weeks he couldn't. He couldn't see how big the gap was, but he knew it was there. To which David Mills said, I think I know the reason his prayer changed his preaching. His intense prayer for his people affected what he saw in Scripture. Prayer is a way of seeing and learning. You grow in knowledge of the people you pray for by praying for them. Our pastor read the Bible as speaking to people he knew, people he loved, a kind of vision. He saw in the Scriptures for Sunday the truths his people most needed to hear, sometimes comforting ones, sometimes challenging ones, sometimes invitations, sometimes judgment, but always the truth we needed to hear because I sat under him. Truth that no online preacher could even begin to match. So who are you whoring after? And then he concludes, that's the big secret to good preaching. Pray intensely for your people. Pray for them a lot. If someone were to preach this very sermon that you're hearing today, word for word, in any other church, it would not have the same impact because it's bathed in prayer for you. When a preacher really prays, like Pastor Dave does, through a broken and dependent heart, like he has, He'll hear the truth for you in particular from the one who is the truth. It happens not through some generic, you know, online sermon that caters to this mass audience. By preachers who have their following in mind. It's a huge temptation. And if you don't have a following yet, too many wannabe celebrity preachers have their future following in mind and not their flock. No, what you'll get here is truth that's tailored to a particular people that you need particularly as particular individuals at a particular time and place. The spirit-filled, spirit-led truth that's born only through a labor of prayer. And of course, it'll take time for Pastor Dave to do that. <laughs> and everyone's gonna wanna get a piece of him. <laughs> And he wants a piece of all of you too. He really loves people. But there will be time. He's here for the long haul. It doesn't have to happen all at once. So you need to be very careful to give him time for God. 
and time for his young family. Because when that happens, though you'll get less of the pastor, you'll get more of the Savior and of his treasures. I've learned over 40 years, the last 40 years of ministry, that, 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 that an amalgam of Scripture and prayer is the secret sauce. It's the secret of what you might call the Midas touch, the touch of the master's hand, of producing gold, silver, and precious stones, as Paul said, in the lives of God's people. Yet these days, so many have become impoverished and dissatisfied with the local church. And a good part of that is because, like Solomon says, the eyes of the fool are on the ends of the earth. Proverbs 17, 24. And COVID hasn't helped. Truth be told, so many of God's people are going not to Christ, but from church to church, website to website, celebrity preacher to celebrity preacher, just like I used to do with my own idols. You must beware of listening too much. It can create huge dissatisfaction with what you got at home. And you can't possibly obey it all, so you'll end up sitting and soaking. And too many people, therefore, end up homeless and impoverished. Because celebrity preachers with a following can't begin to compete with praying pastors with a flock for those who have ears to hear anyway. Who don't judge a pastor by, by, by numbers or by other preachers. Huh. I'm telling you, to a pastor, that feels like a tyranny, a sword over your head. These all-American idolatries of numbers and of famous preachers and of, uh, 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 of worldly success over godly faithfulness. All these fleshly ambitions among the clergy, ambitions that are egged on by fat baby Christians who want to gorge on worldly glory rather than grow in heavenly glory. So which are you? And so when pastors, under all that pressure, when they fall, who's to blame? There's plenty of blame to go around. It's not through the glory of some celebrity that you'll share the glory of the Son of Man. No real glory comes at home in humble obscurity. At a local church like this, under a praying pastor like that, through your central value of being a transforming community, a biblically grounded congregation in a world of sinking sin, a devoted people who are captivated by Christ alone. Because this is where the diamonds are. What diamonds? Well, you may have heard the story of Ali Hafid, he was an ancient Persian, Persian who owned a large farm with orchards and grain fields and gardens and streams, and he had many investments, and he was wealthy, and he was contented. But one day, an old priest visited him and told him the story of creation, and he concluded the story of creation by saying that, the, that diamonds were the most rare and valuable of all gems created by concealed drops of sunlight, and if Ali had diamonds, he could get anything he wanted for himself and for his family. Well, Ali Hafid began to dream about diamonds and about how much they were worth, and uh, it went on and on until he became a poor man, 
hadn't lost anything, but he was poor because he was discontented. One morning, he decided to sell his farm and all he had and travel the world in search of diamonds. He collected his money and he left his family and he began his search. But though he traveled through all of Palestine and Europe, he found nothing. And at last, after all this money was spent, he ended up destitute, impoverished, homeless, far from home, standing on the seashore in Barcelona, Spain, on a high cliff, and he couldn't resist the awful temptation of throwing himself in. Meanwhile, at the farm he had sold back home, the man who bought it led his camel to one of the brooks to have a drink. And as the camel put its nose into the water, the new owner of the farm noticed a curious flash of light in the riverbed. And so he stirred up the sands with his fingers, and as he did, he found scores of the most beautiful gems, diamonds. This was the discovery of the most magnificent diamond mine in the history of mankind, the Golconda. The largest crown jewel diamonds in the world have come from this mine. And so it was that Ali Hafid's diamonds were right under his nose, and he didn't even know it. Because the eyes of the fool are on the ends of the earth. I know this church better than most. I've gotten to know you from the inside out, from the top down, from the bottom up, warts and all. And I'm here to tell you today that the diamonds are here. I'm looking at them right now. And by God's grace, the way he's teed all this up, this is where they'll be more and more in the years to come. You'll be a transforming community as you focus on the Son of Man here at home. You'll share his glory here at home as you fix your hearts on the one that is more precious than jewels, like we sing, more costly than gold, more beautiful than diamonds and has that to give us. You'll see flashes of light in the riverbed of the Spirit as in the elders' words two and a half years ago, you center your focus on Christ alone. Here at home, home sweet home. And so, brothers and sisters, at long last, this will be our last day here. And after Jeff Jeffrin preaches next week on August 8th and Jim Murphy on August 15th, on Sunday, August 22nd, David Hoffelmeyer will be here in my place. Because pastors and people come and go, don't they? But not him. It's like the lyrics of the great hymn that I was listening to Yesterday, change and decay, and all around I see, oh, thou that changeth not, abide with me. Loved ones come and go, but still we can sing, because he stays the same. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still among those who seek to know and show the enduring truth and love of Jesus Christ. Still we can sing, therefore, so let's all stand.
to do that. Sing of him who changes not as the worship leaders come forward. With the uh, departure of one pastor and the arrival of another, as I go and he comes, oh, above and under and through and over it all, be captivated by Christ alone.